When Abby and I were dating, I made the mistake of bringing her home late one evening. Remember that story, Abby? <laughs> uh, oops. Um, so we didn't realize we were late, okay? There was a miscommunication. At least that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, but really, we had, no, we had no fear as I was bringing her home uh, late. We had no fear because we, we actually thought we were in the right. And so I walk her to the door, and um, uh, she goes to open the door, and we realize that the door is locked. We thought, this is not good. Because either mom and dad have fallen asleep waiting for their daughter to come home, or they decided we're locking the door and headed to bed. And we'll see when she shows up. Either way, um, we thought this is not good because we, we need to get inside. She needs to get inside. And mom and dad are going to have to be awakened. So, you know, we, Abby gingerly knocks on the door. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> and uh, soon enough, Mike, my now father-in-law, comes to the door uh, and look of fear on my face and um, anger in his eyes, and he says to me, um, don't plan on seeing her tomorrow. So, so you know, um, my heart skipped a beat. You know, I, don't, I was just scared out of my mind, and uh, Abby goes inside, and, uh, you know, of course, I'm scared to death. I walk gingerly back to, the, to my car with the hair on my neck still standing up, and the next day, though, Merciful Mike, as I like to call him, invites me over for dinner at their house. Um, of course he did. He's so kind and merciful. He sees, when he sees me, when I come over to the house, he sees me, and he just laughs and laughs and laughs <laughs> about what happened the previous night. And then, of course, he jokes on me all night. Things like, you should have seen the look on your face. <laughs> and did you forget that we all have phones? That you could have, like, we could have made this thing happen, right? What were you guys thinking? So, there I was. Uh, have you ever disobeyed and deserved punishment? We could have done something about making sure we were on time. But you disobey and you deserve punishment, but then the one who is to punish decides to demonstrate his mercy and give grace to the undeserving. Ever been there before? How, how did that make you feel? Maybe it was when a, a law enforcement officer pulls you over and tells you the sins that you've committed. Says, I'm going to let you go. And you're like, oh, breathe. I still have money in my account. Thank you. Um, well, we've seen this already. And we're, we're going to see something like this in the Noah story as well tonight as we look at it. There's severe judgment on people who deserve it. But there's always this silver lining of grace, kindness, and mercy from the Lord. We've seen it already. And we'll continue to see it. Now, look with me at Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, 
verse 1. And this is the book of the generations of Adam. So remember I told you before that the book of Genesis is separated into um, uh, sections by this phrase. These are the generations of. So we saw that in chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And now the second one here. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So we'll cover this. In uh, Genesis chapter 5, it's a genealogy. Um, I'm not going to read all of it. Brent did a fantastic job this morning reading all these big names. He's a braver man than I. Um, But this chapter is all about death. If your your Bible is separated into paragraphs, you'll see this really clearly. At the end of verse 4, Sorry, at the end of verse 5, and he died. At the end of verse 8, and he died. At the end of verse 11, and he died. At the end of verse 14, and he died. At the end of verse 17, and he died. And on and on and on. So just in case you were tempted to think, wait, I thought God promised death to Adam and Eve if they were to to sin and disobey and eat of the fruit of the the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil. There's this chapter. Chapter 5. And there's a pattern in the way this is given to us, okay? And here's what the pattern looks like. There was this man who lived this many years. Then he had a kid and lived this many more years after he had that kid. So this guy lived for lots of years. Then he died. Got that? That's the pattern that you're going to see over and over and over. In Genesis chapter 5, the chapter of death. But there are actually three breaks in this pattern that we see. And that's what's going to draw out the significance for us here in Genesis chapter 5. The three breaks are the first one, Adam, the last one with Noah, and the seventh one, Enoch. Okay, so let's look at these three together. Adam, in verses 1 and 2, you'll see, uh, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of man. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So, Adam, we're reminded that when God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them. This is a reminder of man's purpose to represent God on earth. And so this question ought to be in our minds. How is it going so far in the book of Genesis? How is it going so far with Adam and Eve being God's representatives, made in his image and likeness, Cain and Abel, how is it going? Is this actually happening? And it doesn't quite seem to be the case. Then, in the seventh panel, you'll see Enoch. Look at verse 22 and 24. Enoch walked with God. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. On this one, you don't see the ending, and he died. In verse 24, like all the others, but twice you see that Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. Here's a guy that experiences God's blessing in a fallen world. As one of my friends, John Varner, taught during ABS class. He walks with God for 300 years. 
300 years. And God rescues this man from the curse of death. Maybe a foreshadowing of what is to come. Do you see grace that we see throughout this? Noah, the end here, Noah in verse 29, this, is, this son born to Lemek is going to bring relief. I wonder what that relief will look like. What do you think it's going to look like? Noah, look at the middle of verse uh, 29. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. I wonder what that's going to look like. So, in this chapter, we see that God judges in this chapter. But God also continues to demonstrate his grace and kindness. Even in this chapter of death, God gives grace to people. He shows mercy to people. Now, let's look at Genesis chapter 6, alluded to this morning in It just so happened in Numbers. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read the first eight verses and we'll comment on those eight verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the, into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were mighty men of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from uh, whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. At the beginning of the chapter 6, we see that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, okay? That word attractive is the same word good. God saw, that uh, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good. And they took as their wives as, uh, as they chose. They saw that they were good and they took. Does that sound familiar so far? Does that sound like it parallels with what happened in the Garden of Eden with Eve. She saw that it was good, and she took. We'll see this pattern come up again with Pharaoh and Sarai in Genesis chapter 12. Sees, Pharaoh sees, and takes. Then we'll see a similar pattern with Sarai and Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. Uh, Sarah takes, and gives. Also with David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, he sees and he takes. Sin. Devastation. Now, in this chapter, as Pastor Brent discussed this morning, um, he talked about the sons of God. There's debate on who actually the sons of God are. And as I was sitting over there this morning, I'm like, please agree with me. <laughs> and he does. Okay, so I agree with him, actually. Um, he, uh, 
he talked about, there's um, two of the most convincing views are one, it could be fallen angels that have took uh, uh, the daughters of men, or they could be referring to the kings or rulers of the day, despots, if you will. So, one, those who say that they are angels will cite Job 1, verse 6, right, where angels are referred to as sons of God. They'll, they'll see the really dramatic language of Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, with the Nephilim, the giants, and the mighty men of old, men of renown. Something big is going on here, they'll say. But I, th- I think they'd have to show some kind of connection that one may be referring to the other, or there's significant connection here, and I'm, com- I'm unconvinced personally that that is the case. So the second way that people see this is those who say that they are despots or human rulers and kings will note that the judgment to follow was on who? Mankind. The judgment was on mankind. If angels are the ones who saw and took and sinned, then why is mankind punished? Well, people might say maybe because of man's passivity, like Adam's. Remember Adam's passivity in the garden? But then I don't see mankind sinning here like Adam did. He actually took and ate. The sin of the angels does not, in my opinion, logically or contextually warrant judgment on humans. So, Some actually combine the two views a little bit. They say that they are despots, they're human uh, rulers and kings. And we'll note that the judgment to follow was on mankind. They'll combine the two views here, saying that they were probably men being ruled or even controlled by fallen angels, by demons. I'm okay with that. It's actually probably true of all of mankind's terrible rulers of our day and of the past. heard someone say, Satan is behind every false religion. I favor the first view I mentioned, the sons of God are despots, although I'm good with the somewhat of a combination of the two, like I said, because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers of the dark. So, what is the conclusion, though, that is drawn? What's the conclusion here in, in this small section through verse 8? The Lord says, he concludes, that I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. The Lord will blot out mankind from the face of the earth. He will separate man from earth. Why did he decide to do this? Why did the Lord decide to blot out man from the earth? What is the reason mentioned in the text here? It says right there in verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Remember that phrase. We're going to come back to that. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But Noah but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Notice this statement. Noah found favor, or better, Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Noah does not deserve this, and that's what grace is. Do you remember that? Sometimes we're tempted to think that since Noah was a good guy, he deserved to be saved. And this is saying, no, God gives grace. 
God is the one who gives a gift that is undeserved. The author uses this term to show us that Noah is evil too, but for the grace of God. Even for what comes next, remember that this is a grace of God in the life of Noah. God will give him grace. Praise the Lord for this truth. Especially for what is to come. Next, verse 9, the generations of Noah. We just saw the generations of Adam, and now we'll look at the generations of Noah, the next section in the book of Genesis. This is the Noah story. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Have we seen that before? Noah walked with God. Sounds pre-fall, Garden of Eden, and it sounds like Enoch. But the earth was corrupt, it was corrupt, it was corrupt. Look at verse, um, verse 10, look at verse 10. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. See the repetition there? Things are terrible. So God says he's going to destroy man with the earth. But he will establish his covenant with Noah. A covenantal relationship will be established with Noah. Look, verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is three, ar- length of the ark 300 cubits. Its breadth five, 50 cubits. And its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower and second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But... I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, your, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, stored up, It shall serve as food for you and for them. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah was obedient. So God commands Noah to build an ark. Animals are brought into the ark. He is exercising dominion and rule over animals like Adam was commanded to do. He's actually doing it. And then Genesis 7 and eight, there's the flood. So sometimes in the Bible, rain is seen as a blessing. Here, judgment. There's a, a in this story, it's beautifully written. There's a, a crescendo all the way up until chapter eight. 
And then after chapter eight, verse one, there's a day crescendo. By repetition, building of each paragraph, building upon itself. Each section, one author puts it this way, each section picks up the narrative at a point in time in the midst of the prior section by carrying, but carrying the narrative further. There's a crescendo and decrescendo forms a chiasm and it focuses in on chapter eight, verse one. I won't read all of this, but I want to highlight some things that you'll see here. In chapter seven, verses one through five, there's God's command to bring animals into the ark. And Noah did it, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Did we just see that in verse 22? He did all that the Lord commanded him. Then, verses 6 through 10. The flood waters came upon the earth, verse 6. Noah brought animals into the ark. Repetition, we just saw that he did that. Then, in verse 10, the flood waters came upon the earth. You just saw that in verse 6. This is verse 10. So do you sense the crescendo that's happening? Then look at verse 11 through 16. Notice the, the intensifying language. Look at the second part in verse 11. All the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. See that cosmic kind of terminology? And rain fell upon the earth for 40 days. Then Noah brought animals and his family into the ark. Repetition. Yet again, verse 17 and verse 20 through verse 24, the flood continues for 40 days, repetition, serious repetition about all those on earth who are dying. There's, this is the fullest, most repetitive and most intense characterization of the destruction of evil. Listen to this in verse 17. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed. And increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were, heaven were covered. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the, from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. God takes sin so seriously. He hates sin. And he has to judge it. It has to be dealt with. But God remembered Noah. See that in verse 1, chapter 8? God remembered Noah and all the, all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And there's this day crescendo that we see. God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. Down to more natural terms in verses 3 and 4 like water receding for 150 days and the ark resting upon Ararat. Verses 5 through 12, the pace of the flood receding slows down, especially with the drawn-out description of the birds 
gradually leaving? Do you feel the story slow down? Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 8, the earth is dry, he says twice. So, the reversal of the flood presented in cosmic terms of the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven closing. Then, as the waters abating to the point of the ark resting upon Ararat, then to the point at which the tops of the mountains were visible, then to where the raven would not return, then to where the dove would not even return, then to the point at which the surface of the ground is dry, and finally to the point where the earth is dry. So you see this very evident building and then um, decrescendo in the story. But what's the focus? The focus there is that God remembered Noah in chapter 8, verse 1. God, in his sovereignty over all this destruction, had compassion on the inhabitants of the ark. This is the focus of this part of the story. Think about this. God has not been treated well. He has not been followed well. His creation has totally rebelled against him. He has every right to destroy the earth completely and start all over. And he almost basically does. But he doesn't. He gives grace. And this was all part of his plan, to give grace to those who don't deserve it. Grace to those who don't deserve it. So, God tells Noah in, chapter, in verse 15 and 17, get out of the ark, be fruitful and multiply. Then Noah builds an altar to the Lord and sacrifices animals to the Lord. His response is worship to the Lord for his salvation. Now look at what the Lord says in chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So, let me ask you, what was the reason for the Lord destroying the earth? And what was the reason for the Lord promising not to curse the ground like this again? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Sounds a lot like what we saw in chapter 6, verse 5. The same reason he destroyed the people on the earth is the same reason he promises not to destroy it. What is going on here? I'm going to destroy the earth because people are terrible. And then he says, I am not going to destroy the earth because people are terrible. Or not for the grace of God. Well, I think... This tension that we see here brings two really amazing, incredible points. One is that God is judge, and the other is that God is our Savior. Praise the Lord. 
Praise the Lord. We cannot save ourselves. Left to ourselves, the intentions of our hearts are only evil continually. I would point you to Psalm 14 to reiterate this, or Romans chapter 3 to reiterate this, as as Paul quotes Psalm 14. There's none who seek after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is man's judge and God is man's savior because we cannot do it ourselves. Every intention of our heart is evil from our youth were it not for the grace of God. Genesis 9, be fruitful and multiply is the command. You see it in verse 7, you see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 7, and you saw it back in chapter 8, verse 17. God seems to be starting over with Noah. God makes a covenant with Noah. Look at chapter, uh, look at verse 9, or verse 8 and following. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Here's the sign, verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God makes a covenant with Noah. He enters into a covenantal relationship with Noah and his people. And God gives a rainbow as a sign to remind himself and us of the covenant that was made. And following this, oh man, following this, Noah became a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. Right? Verse 20. Noah became a man, of, he began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Verse 21. He drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham and the father of the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, 
shall he be to his brothers. Noah sins. Noah gets drunk and he acts inappropriately and he ends up naked in a tent. For some reason, our translators have given us his tent, but he just lay, the text says he lays uncovered in a tent. So his son Ham came in and saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Instead of rescuing him, Ham decides to go and tell his two brothers. His brothers do the rescuing. There's a lot of discussion on what all is happening here, and I don't know. Some people will say that there's um, something else going on here with Ham and his father, massively inappropriate. But even if it's just this, instead of rescuing him, Ham goes and reports it to his brothers. His brothers do the rescuing. Although Noah is a man who's blameless, a man who walks with God, he is not sinless. Sin does not leave the earth. Man still falls Man still fails. This is a terrible ending to the story of Noah, left out of most children's books. But this is the truth. And there's great things to learn here. So, can I cover just three implications for our life from this text? Implication number one God is judge. He must punish sin. God is our judge. God judges mankind because of our sin. God hates sin. That ought to stand out to us so clearly. He takes sin very, very seriously. He doesn't mess around with sin. He doesn't say, it's okay for you to mess around with sin just a little bit. It's not going to harm you too bad. Watch this. It's okay. Listen to that kind of music. It's fine. It's not. God takes his sin so seriously. God is the judge of the whole world. So I ask, do we take sin seriously? Yeah, I I mean, I look out into the world and I hate that sin so much that we see out there. I mean, sin, the world is just going, let's see where the world is headed. Okay, yes, sin in the world is terrible. But what about sin in our own lives? Do you sin? I mean, we would all say, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Or to ask it another way, in what way are you currently waging war against sin in your life? Or do you pretend that you don't sin? Do you know that? Do you know that left to yourself, your heart is this way, only evil continually? Do you believe that to be true? God knows our hearts are this way, but do we understand this truth? Causing us to lean on him, pursue him with our lives. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you don't sin that much. 1 John 1, 8 and 10. So, do you sin? Well, of course I do. I know know the right answer to that. Yes. Okay. What sin are you currently working on? What is it? I'll say it out loud. What is the sin you're currently working on or do you pretend that you don't sin? 
Do you know where and when you are most prone to sin? Or do we pretend like everything's just fine? We basically live life like we don't actually sin. Or maybe we think that our sin isn't really that serious. May we not walk away from this text and see that sin and think that sin is not serious before God. Oh, may the Lord rescue us from thinking this way, thinking that we are basically sinless, wage war against, and God is our judge. Number two, God is our Savior. You saw that coming. God is our Savior. Praise the Lord. In this Noah narrative, God moves from enacting judgment because of man's sin to enacting redemption because of man's sin. There is no clear motivation for this except that it is simply his sovereign decision to extend grace. Rather than destroy mankind, he begins his salvific work. And we'll see that throughout the book of Genesis and throughout the story of the Bible. We eventually will see that he redeems us once and for all at the cross. He sees how evil mankind actually is and he sends his son to rescue. Our Savior has come. Trust in him. Believe in him. Place your faith in him and you too will receive the gift of salvation. Praise be to God. The grace from our Lord Jesus Christ given to us. And not only does he redeem us ultimately, but he also redeems us every single day, saves us from our sins on a daily basis. He knows that our heart, left to ourselves, is only evil continually. He knows that we are full of sin. He stands ready to forgive you no matter what. 1 John 1, 9, if it's right between those two verses I just mentioned to you about pretending not to sin, if you say you have no sin, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Based upon his faithfulness, he will always back his word. And based upon his justice, because someone has paid for that sin. That's why he can forgive. Someone bore the wrath. Confess your sins regularly to God. See your sin clearly, hate it, and confess it. God takes pleasure in saving people. God stands ready to show grace, just like my father-in-law did. Can't wait to forgive. He's merciful. The Lord redeems people to himself. We cannot save ourselves. Left to ourselves, the intentions of our hearts are only evil continually. Even Noah fell, a man who walked with God. We, if we try to save ourselves, we'll find ourselves naked and exposed like a drunk man. We need salvation from the Lord. No other man will save except the Lord Jesus. Number three, walk with God. Walk with God. One one man through many generations of, G- of Genesis chapter 5. One man walked with God. Enoch walked with God. One man in all the earth in chapter 6 walked with God. Noah walked with God. Walk with God. All of life focused upon him. Let me just read a, a couple of things from this commentary that I thought were really, really, really good. Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and liked his company because he was going in the same direction as God and had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. We walk with God when he is in all our thoughts, not because we consciously think of him at all times, but because he is naturally suggested to us by all we think of. 
As when any person or plan or idea has become important to us, no matter what we think of, our thought is always found recurring to this favorite object. So with the godly man, everything has a connection with God and must be ruled by that connection. This is the general nature of walking with God. It is a persistent endeavor to hold all our life open to God's inspection and in conformity to his will. It is easy then to understand how we may practically walk with God. It is to open to him all our purposes and hopes and to seek his judgment on our scheme of life and idea of happiness. It is to be on thoroughly friendly terms with God. All of life focused upon him. All of life on his path. Everything we do revolving around him. Walk with God. Walk with God. Let's pray to that end. Dear God, thank you for being a sovereign ruler, one who justly judges. And Lord, thank you for being a gracious king who, although we who deserve eternal damnation, have received your grace. And you have caused us to be a part of your family so that we too may walk with you. So Lord, may we walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. May we walk, live our lives focused upon you, the great judge and the great redeemer. Work this in our lives, Lord. Please give us this grace, for without it, we just sin continually over and over. Thank you for the grace you've, you've given us in our lives that I've seen in the lives of many people in this congregation. Thank you for that grace. All praise and glory goes to you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, give us the strength and wisdom to live for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.